The text here that we land on today is not randomly done. Just over two years ago, I decided to preach through 2 Corinthians whenever I had the opportunity to preach. Due to our James series, we've not been in 2 Corinthians since last November, but I've been planning for weeks to just pick up where I left off. And as today is the first Sunday of Dan's two-month sabbatical, I have the opportunity to revisit this letter of Paul. And in it, I, I certainly think we can see God's providence, as there are themes in this text that speak directly to our suffering and struggling as a church. And in the songs that we've sung, so fitting and so appropriate, were all songs picked out of this text before Wednesday of this past week. Brian gave us a helpful lead-in, background, intro to where we are this morning in this text. Paul knew that most of the Corinthians had been reconciled to God, but some of them were still rejecting him. And that bothered him. It bothered him deeply. Not because he wanted to be liked by everyone, but because in rejecting him as the messenger of reconciliation, they were rejecting the message of reconciliation. As Haithman says, Paul was not trying to recover his ego, but to rescue the Corinthians from judgment. You see, the gospel of Christ was at stake here. And Paul knew that the reason some of them were rejecting him was that they didn't believe he was a true apostle, especially compared to the attractive and glamorous super apostles that they had come to accept. But those guys weren't real. They were actually false apostles. So driven by a passionate desire for them to accept his message and to not receive the grace of God in vain, Paul proceeds in these verses to make the case for why his ministry is authentic. Why he indeed is the real deal. One has described these verses of Paul's as his apostolic identification card. Before we look at that this morning, please join with me in prayer. Father, we now desire for the ministry of your Spirit in our hearts. Please take the Word and affect us by it. We know there's divine power in your Word. And we ask, Lord, you to apply it to our hearts. And may, may each one here this morning hear a better sermon than the one that I preach. Through Christ we ask these things. Amen. We begin in verse 3 of chapter 6. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. We know elsewhere from Paul's writing that the cross of Christ is an obstacle. Paul describes it as a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But that ought to be the only obstacle. We often hear, and I suspect you probably have heard, of non-Christians pointing to sin or hypocrisy in the life of a Christian leader or someone they know who claims to be a Christian, and they point to that as the reason why they refuse to believe the gospel. 
Of course, what they point to can certainly be a misunderstanding or just a convenient excuse. But what a tragedy when it really is an obstacle. See, the only obstacle to people receiving the message of reconciliation should be the cross, not the life of the one delivering the message. Paul tells the Corinthians here that they cannot point to anything in his life or ministry that is a legitimate obstacle to his message. He does nothing that would discredit his witness and turn people away from the gospel. So then he proceeds to commend himself in every way. Now it's worth noting, as as Brian read in chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says there he's not commending himself. In chapter 3 and verse 1, he's he's really negative about this commending thing. So, So what exactly is he doing here? Paul's against a certain kind of commending. He does not commend himself like the super apostles who some of the Corinthians were following, these guys commended themselves with letters of recommendation full of flattery from other people or with an impressive resume that laid out all the reasons why they were, they were really big time. No, see, that's what Paul's against. And here he's seeking to commend himself by the quality and character of his life and his ministry. We should notice here that Paul doesn't mention how many people like him. He says nothing about material prosperity or earthly success. There's nothing here about prestige, education, good image. He doesn't describe himself as a culturally savvy hipster who relates well to the younger generations. Paul's life and work are a model and example of his message And in his commendation, we see the marks of authentic Christian ministry. There's four of them here we see. Authentic Christian ministry is marked by endurance and suffering, divine graces, triumphant surprises, and open-hearted love. First, we see the mark of authentic Christian ministry is endurance and suffering. The second half of verse 4, Paul says his commendation is by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Paul's suffering was a huge obstacle to those who did not see him as a legitimate apostle. You see, these Corinthians assumed that God's blessing would be evidenced by peace and well-being. And so Paul's incessant troubles and miseries were actually evidence of God's displeasure. Because of that, sorry Paul, we just can't accept you. Well, this thinking was not original with the Corinthians. It's exactly what Job heard from his friends. And this thinking did not end with them as still today people believe in karma. And it's alive in our religious world too where so many preach that following Jesus means a life of health and wealth free from suffering. That's really popular. But it's totally, totally not true. Jesus told us, you will have suffering in this world. 
through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul wrote that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And it's been granted to you, Paul wrote, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So while some of the Corinthians saw Paul's suffering as disqualifying, Paul saw an attempt to avoid his suffering as disqualifying. And so he turned their objection into his commendation. The proof that he was legitimate was not that he didn't suffer, but that he greatly endured the suffering he faced. And it's not a small list. Afflictions, hardships, and calamities here were general sufferings that were just par for the course of his life. Beatings, imprisonment, and riots were a type of suffering that came from the hands of others. In chapter 11 of this letter, Paul refers to being whipped and beaten with rods. The only biblical record of his imprisonment up to this point was in Philippi where he and Silas brought down the house with their singing. But he was probably imprisoned at least four more times and likely spent five to six years of his life in jail. In the book of Acts, we read that he was in the center of at least nine different riots. So beatings, imprisonments, and riots are just a sample of the long list of abuse that Paul received from others. Labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. This is a sample of suffering from the discipline and hard work of Paul's ministry. The labor here, it means hard work. Sleepless nights, probably because Paul did his gospel ministry during the day. And then at night he would make tents, which was the means of income that he had in his ministry. He was truly burning the candle at both ends. Hunger, likely, we don't know, but perhaps because he didn't have enough money to buy food or just miss meals here and there due to his life in ministry. I think this is a good place to consider the example of our elders and deacons. We should realize, and I know you do, how blessed we are to be served by men who endure suffering that comes from the discipline and hard work of ministering to us. And for most of these guys, it's work that is in addition to their full-time jobs. And many of you who don't serve as elders and deacons are also an example to me. I see your faces. And you're an example to me of this type of suffering. This type of endurance in suffering that comes about through your service and work of the gospel. There's something here, I think, for every Christian, not just leaders. If you're a servant of Christ, it's worth asking yourself. When was the last time I endured some sort of hardship, discomfort, or inconvenience as a result of faithfulness to the gospel. What is my discipleship of Jesus costing me? 
being patient and steadfast, bearing up under your difficulty when everything in you wants to do whatever you can to get away from it. Holding on to faith in God's promises that His purposes will be accomplished, even if there's no evidence at the moment, this reveals that you're an authentic servant of Christ. Are you finding it difficult to endure the suffering in your life? As hard as it may be, and it's hard, we must remember that failing to patiently endure in suffering does not commend Christ and His Gospel. Beyond suffering, in all the ways that Paul did, Jesus laid down His life, taking all of our sin on Himself as He died. Jesus remained steadfast. He endured the cross for our sake. So when we do whatever we can to escape our suffering, rather than endure it, We're not walking the path of our Savior. That different path may be easier and appear more attractive, but failing to endure suffering is an obstacle to the message of reconciliation. But when others observe patient, steadfast endurance in our trials and suffering, what do they see? They see the reality of our faith in Christ. And that, that commends the gospel. So brothers and sisters, endure. Endure. As hard as it may be, keep bearing your burdens in faith. It's evidence that you're an authentic servant of Jesus Christ. The second mark of authentic Christian ministry we hear in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. These are qualities seen in how Paul lived. And I really hope that this connection between authentic ministry and how one lives is fresh on your mind. See, see, it was only two weeks ago that Pastor Miller preached from Matthew 7 the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount there. And there we saw Jesus telling us to be aware of false prophets. And how did He say we'll know who they are? He said, look at their lives. It's their fruits. Examine how they live. That's how we know who they are. These men, these these false prophets, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven because they do not do the will of the Father. Their ministry is not authentic because they do not display the divine graces of Paul that we see here. Purity. Guiltless conduct. Knowledge is the idea of understanding with insight and tact. Patience and kindness refers to how Paul responded in his life to all the abuse. We see in this letter Paul's patience toward the Corinthians who mistreated him. And we see kindness in the way he was seeking to confront them about the issues. Instead of being embittered, frustrated, angry and resentful by all the afflictions and hardships, hard work and sleepless nights he faced, by God's grace, Paul responded with patience and with kindness. 
the Holy Spirit. We got this list of graces and all of a sudden Paul drops in a person. It perhaps seems a bit, it ought to at least, I think, make us think. But the presence here in this list of the Holy Spirit, I think, makes good sense. You see, these qualities are not natural virtues. I don't know about you, but I become so easily impatient and unkind when difficulties arise in my life. These qualities, patience, they're not inherent in us. Rather, they are the fruit of God's Spirit who dwells with His people. In the Holy Spirit, Paul has found resources to give and not to grumble. To be patient in God's timing rather than to pity himself. To be kind to people rather than to take it out on people. His love was genuine, seen in his frank but gentle criticism of the Corinthians. Truthful speech. We know he spoke the truth of the gospel message. And in the context of this letter, this truthful speech, I think, refers to Paul's not mincing words when he needed to correct them for their sin. Rather than flatter and cajole, Paul spoke the truth. The power of God. He's already referenced God's Holy Spirit, but here he further acknowledges a divine force working in his life and ministry. Enduring what he suffered and living with these qualities could not happen in his own strength. Only possible through the power of God. So both Paul's message and his life was a demonstration, not of Paul, but of the Spirit and God's power. Paul continues to describe the divine graces in his life here through three pairs of opposites starting there in the second half of verse 7, the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left. We know in, in chapter 5 and verse 21 that as Christ took our sin, He gave us His righteousness. The righteousness of God is both a declared status and also a way of life. Paul's weapons were righteous living, a holy life, and that is how he both commended and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. These graces are present through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Paul experienced both. He suffered a lot of insults, but he also basked in praise. For example, the Lyconians, the story there in Acts 14 They worshipped Paul as a god in one moment. And then in another moment, they stoned him and left him for dead. Garland summarizes well Paul's spirit here. He says, Paul was indifferent to fame and abuse because he had a divine internal gyroscope to help maintain his equilibrium when the swings and the responses to him from respect to shame were so dramatic. Insults did not devastate him. Praise did not puff him up. His desire to please only God kept him on an even keel. As ministers of the gospel, as servants of Christ, we must not depend on others for our reputation. 
And we have got to have the courage to be unpopular. Do you find it hard to be faithful when you're dishonored or even slandered? When people perhaps hold you in contempt for what you believe? I do. My natural response then is to defend myself or to return some sort of dishonor right back to them. But through God's Spirit and by His power, we can respond like Paul with patience and kindness. Do you find it hard to be faithful when you're honored or praised? This is hard too, and perhaps for many of us, maybe even harder. If you're like me, it can be, be, it can be pretty easy to become full of yourself when others seem to be full of you. And as unnatural as it is, through God's Spirit and by His power, we can, like Paul, remain faithful when we, when we receive honor and praise. And as we consider this list of divine graces, there's a reminder here that we cannot separate the message of the gospel that we, came to, came, that we claim to believe. We cannot separate that message from how we live. The quality and character of our lives is a really big deal. It's a big deal because it's the fruit that reveals whether or not we're genuine servants of Christ. Whether or not we're genuine Christians. Therefore, we cannot rightly commend a message of salvation through Jesus Christ without a life that reflects the transforming power and effects of that message. For those of us who you've recognized as elders and deacons, This is a reminder to us that we must watch our lives closely, as Paul told Timothy. And as we look to add to our leadership in the future, as the Lord wills, and and as those of you who will be part of our church plant in Richfield, as, as you look to identify leadership in the future, this is a reminder that we must always value character over personality and spiritual substance over style and charm. And this is a reminder for all of us as we simply live in front of our neighbors, our family, our friends, and our coworkers. By God's grace, may nothing in our lives ever be an obstacle to the glorious message of reconciliation to God through Christ. The third mark of authentic Christian ministry is triumphant surprises. We see this list beginning in the second part of verse 8. We are treated as imposters and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We see here seven pairs, which form each of which form a paradox. A paradox is two things which on the surface appear to be contradictory. But, but in reality, they're not. The first half of these paradoxes read together, it's like a dirge. Imposters, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, as having nothing. But the second half is a dance. 
with the exception of the first pair, what we see in the first half is true. Paul does not merely appear to be unknown, dying, beaten, sorrowful, poor, and having nothing. He is. But it's not the whole truth. And it's definitely not the main truth. The first description is connected to the brief and shadowy realities that affect clay vessels. But the second description is related to the presence of the all-surpassing power from God in his life. The first description is temporary. The second description is eternal. Paul was treated as an imposter, but, but not as, not, he, Paul was not an imposter. This is not a true charge. But in the world's eyes, he was. From their perspective, he was only a fraud who preached foolishness. But his message was true. And he was the real deal. Paul was unknown. The Pharisee of the Pharisees had become a nobody. Paul was not the VIP apostle. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he described himself as by saying, we become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's saying, I might be a little short, bald guy with a crooked nose who doesn't talk very well. But I'm known by God. I'm known by God. So much of our world is about connections, right? So much is all about who you know. There's really good news here for those of us with no connections. Those of us who are unknown by the people in power who can hook us up with that deal or that really good job that we would love to have. Even though we are unknown in this world, we are known by God. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says, What matters supremely, therefore, is the fact that God knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Paul says he's dying. And yet he lives. Regardless of how much we may feel it now, every single one of us are dying. Even our son Josiah, who just turned one, cannot walk, cannot talk. But the process of death has already begun in his little life. Paul faced death virtually every day, and he says that even though he's dying, he's fully alive in Christ. We already possess eternal life, which one day will be fully realized. Paul was punished, but not killed. He was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. This pair going to spend a little bit more time on There's so much here. going to spend a little bit more time on this one. And, and I think it's particularly relevant as we feel deep sorrow over the loss of our dear brother Keith. Paul's life was full of all types of sorrows. D- difficulties, hardships, no doubt brought sorrow. 
there was a lot about his relationship with the Corinthians that was just downright painful. In Romans 9, 2, he confesses having great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart because the Jews who were heirs of God's promise turned their back on their Messiah. So Paul was sorrowful. We see that. We get that. He admits that. But then in Philippians 4, 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. So which is it, Paul? Which is it? How can you have anguish in your heart that's always there, yet at the same time be always rejoicing? You can't have it both ways, can you? Paul tells us here that you can. He tells us here that you can. For the authentic servant of Christ, it is both sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Hughes explains so well, I think, how this is possible. No sorrow, no disappointment, however severe, could ever interrupt, let alone extinguish, the joy of his salvation with its vision of unclouded glory to come. For this joy was founded upon the sovereign supremacy of God, who overrules all things and causes them to work together for the good of those he has called. I have a pastor friend in Indiana who signs off all his emails with sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Kevin. When I first was getting emails from him and saw that, it it stood out to me as a bit unique. But after meditating on its meaning this week, I've grown to love that sign-off. I'm not sure there's a better short description of the Christian life. You see, there is enough sin in our hearts, sadness in the world, and pain in our lives to make us the most broken-hearted people on the planet. And yet there is such great salvation, unimaginable hope, and a beautiful Savior in Jesus Christ that we ought to be the happiest folks anyone can meet. It's possible that you're here this morning and you know very, very well this life of sorrow. But you can't relate so much to the rejoicing part. If that's you, there's really, really good news. It's possible to rejoice even in our sorrow because of a person. Jesus Christ, who, as we sang this morning, was himself a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. His greatest sorrow was taking upon himself our sin and paying the penalty for our sin as he died in our place on the cross. In his death, Jesus experienced deeper sorrow than we can ever know. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you so that through repentance and faith, you might have forgiveness of sin so that you might experience true and lasting joy even in your sorrow. This gift of salvation is God's grace to you. Today is the day to turn from your sin And to trust in Jesus, your sorrow is not going to disappear. 
but you won't be without joy. If you'd like to think and talk more about how you can have joy in the midst of your sorrow, please talk with someone before you leave. We'd be happy to talk with you more and show you Christ who gives us the grace to rejoice in our sorrow. And as we think about this pair for us as Christians, I think there perhaps could be a danger of imbalance. We can say that we believe the gospel, but sort of like Eeyore, live as if we never heard any good news in our life. We need to remember that sin has been paid for. Death has been conquered. Our inheritance is sure. A new heaven and a new earth is on the way. So rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. But it also may be possible to focus on our joy so much that we fail to really grieve over the sin and its effect upon our world. We're all wired a bit differently. We're all going to express sorrow and joy in different ways. But regardless of who we are, and regardless of our level of expressiveness, we ought to feel a balanced sense of both sorrow and joy. And this is why we seek as a church, we don't seek, to create an atmosphere of bouncy, chipper, lighthearted and playful worship when we gather on the Lord's Day. But we also don't want a morose, gloomy, sullen, dark or heavy atmosphere of solemnity. In the words of John Piper, what we need to gather, what we need as we gather is to see and feel indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. It must be clear that we are not playing games. We're not using religion as a platform for the same old, hyped-up self-help that the world offers every day. We need the greatness and grandeur of God over our heads like galaxies of hope. We need the unfathomable crucified and risen Christ embracing us in love with blood all over His face and hands. And we need the thousand mile deep rock of God's word under our feet. Have you seen and heard both expressions of sorrow and joy this morning? I have. I've seen and felt in both. And we don't strike the perfect balance and some weeks will be better than others. But this is what we strive for as we plan and prepare our services each week. And this is what the world needs to see, not only in the church, but in our individual lives. A joy in the midst of health, joy in the midst of wealth and ease when everyone's speaking well of you. Why on earth is that going to mean anything to the world? They've already got that. But invincible joy in the midst of sorrow, that they don't have. That is what Jesus came to give in this fallen and pain-filled world. So responding to the reality of suffering with sorrow, yet at the same time rejoicing in the hope we have, commends the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says he was poor, yet making many rich. No one could accuse Paul of getting rich off the gospel. That wasn't at all a problem. And it's right for us as pastors today to be paid for their work and you are incredibly generous 
to Dan and Rich and I in this regard. But as ministers of the gospel, we must live in such a way where no one is second guessing whether or not we're in it for the money. Paul says he has nothing but possesses everything. Earlier in this letter, Paul told the Corinthians that all things are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's a pretty good inheritance. Our world tells us that freedom and security comes from accumulating all in life that you can. That's the path to freedom and security. But this, this is real freedom and security. When you can say, I have nothing to lose because I own it all already. And there is nothing I can lose because all of it is mine in Christ. I love the words of De Young who said, when we understand our union with Christ, we can renounce our possession of anything and in so doing gain ownership of everything. Think of that. Renounce our possession of anything and in so doing gain ownership of everything. Authentic Christian ministry is marked by triumphant surprises. Life for the servant of Jesus Christ is about far more than meets the eye. The final mark Paul gives us of authentic Christian ministry is open-hearted love. Verse 11, he says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. We can, we can hear in these verses emotion. Paul's emotion as he calls the Corinthians by name. He speaks to them as his children. His words flow out of his love for them. He was speaking from his heart. Not as a guy whose feelings were hurt, but as their father in the faith. His appeal, though very emotional, flowed from his self-understanding as an agent, an ambassador of God's saving work in Christ. You see, the breach in their relationship was not caused by Paul. He had not abandoned his affection for them. Verse 12, the second part, literally reads, you're constricted in your bowels. The bowels were the seat of, are the seat of emotions. The Corinthians' love had grown cold. They'd squeezed Paul out of their hearts, by treating him with distrust and suspicion. Paul's desire for them to love him was specifically and especially related to the message of the gospel he was sharing. So this here was not ultimately about Paul. It was about Jesus Christ. And I think we see here a powerful example of how we, your spiritual shepherds, must love you. Paul was humbly initiating He was willing to lay out his entire life for the good of the gospel and the good of the Corinthians. As people in in my life, as people close their hearts towards me, which, unlike Paul, oftentimes is because of sin on my part, but, but when that happens, as people close their hearts towards me, my temptation is to just close my heart to them. All right, I tried, buddy. You clearly don't want it. So I'm just, fine, I'll just give you what you want. And But that's not what Paul does, is it? No, he reaches out with open-hearted love, 
even though they had closed their hearts to him. I think we see an example here, too, of how all of us should respond to the efforts of our elders to shepherd and love us. So, so as, as we relate to our elders, we see here the responsibility to open our hearts to them. And then thinking just beyond our relationship as elders to you and you to the elders. Let's remember that every member of our church is a spiritual shepherd. So we ought to be seeking to build one another up spiritually, just like Paul was seeking to do here with the Corinthians. While preaching this text, Mark Dever asked his congregation, do you have a friend who has shared the gospel with you or sought to disciple you in some way? That is a person you should love. That is a person who is pursuing you in gospel desires that will only be a blessing to you and to them. You should love that person. In fact, loving such people is related to loving God. If you're a member of this church, you have agreed in our church, you've agreed to our church covenant. And I think there's something even as we look at that here. So just, if you're a member, please read this with me. Let's remind ourselves. We've agreed to honor the leadership of the flock and to exercise affectionate concern and spiritual watch care over one another. To faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives. To serve one another. To rejoice in one another's happiness. And to bear one another's burdens and sorrows with tender compassion. In all of these responsibilities, there's both a give and a take. And neither the give or the take can happen without open-hearted love. But as Ferguson has observed so well, if our heart is Christ's, it will be open to loving others. In this text, we've carefully examined Paul's apostolic ID card. And we've seen that authentic Christian ministry is marked by endurance and suffering, divine graces, triumphant surprises, and open-hearted love. I know you're not an apostle. And in fact, most of you are not even an elder. But what kind of servant are you? Is your life worthy of commendation in this way? Is this what your life is about? Is this what you want for the children in your life? Is this what you want for this church? We all have much room to grow in each of these four marks. But by God's grace, May we continue to look to Christ, continue to be transformed more and more into His image. And in our lives and ministry, may we commend the gospel in every way. Father, we thank You for Your Spirit and Your power, which is at work in our lives. Thank You, Father, for calling us to Yourself, making us Your servants for giving us this glorious ministry of reconciliation. Father, may you continue to work in our hearts. 
May we be people, families, a church that in every way commends your name in the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen.